It's Muppeturgy, and I don't know how to love the Helen Ready episode of The Muppet Show. <laughs> Yay. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. So glad you're here. We've missed you. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are... Adam Grossworth. Christy Bauer. And Michal Richardson. Here is a Muppet News flash. We are here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 13 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of May 9th, 1978, and following this episode, the production took a six-month break to make the Muppet movie. Heard of it. That's a good reason. It aired in New York September 18th, 1978, and it was the season premiere, and it was followed by the Roy Clark episode. So that makes this the earliest aired episode of the season in our podcast timeline, and that production break means that that's not going to change. So this is the last time you'll have to hear me talk about the New York City newspaper strike. Speaking of, in the news, via Ultimate70s.com and the Chicago Tribune, and not fact-checked because of the New York City newspaper strike, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat appeared before Congress as part of President Carter's Middle East peace plan. And a 33% across-the-board tax cut spread over three years was narrowly defeated in the Senate Finance Committee. Democrats, led by Senator Lloyd Benson, Democrat of Texas, claimed the GOP plan would cause roaring inflation. Senator William Roth, Republican from Delaware, chief sponsor of the measure, said, once again, we have forgotten the middle class. Mostly including this because uh, of Lloyd Benson. Uh, I like that we have mentioned him twice this season. And just because of the way the parties seem to be flipping. And because roaring inflation would make a great band name. Speaking of band names, on the cash box charts... Boogie Oogie Oogie is the number one song. Hopelessly Devoted to You, Grease, and Summer Nights are at four, seven, and eight, respectively. And Grease is the number one album. And still the word. And on TV, um, since we are back at the beginning of the, of the fall season, on CBS, following The Muppet Show, we have the WKRP and Cincinnati pilot, followed by a show that we maybe talked about in our season premiere, but I don't think we did, because it only had seven episodes. And it it must have changed nights uh, after this because it has not been on our Monday nights. It is People, a TV version of People magazine hosted by future Muppet Show guest star Phyllis George. Tonight's guests, and I'm reading this from Ultimate70s.com, Willie Nelson, King of Country Music, Tammy Luchow, A Handicapped Child, and Suzanne Summers. A visit to Studio 54, New York's most popular discotheque, also will be presented. I what can't I- imagine why this show only ran seven episodes. <laughs> anyway, that was followed by our regular Monday Night lineup of MASH, One Day at a Time, and Lou Grant. Uh, over on ABC, Welcome Back, Cotter, Operation Petticoat, which stood out to me because the episode title is Operation Spleen. I did I- not look too much further into this. <laughs> Feel free to let us <laughs> okay. know. On NBC, Little House on the Prairie, As Long as We're Together, Part 2, The Ingalls at All Arrive in Winoka, as previously discussed at great length. <laughs> and then our movie this week is called Audrey Rose. Uh, this was not a TV movie. It was a 1977 theatrical release based on the 1975 novel of the same name. It was directed by Robert Wise, and it starred Marcia Mason and Anthony Hopkins. Uh, a stranger attempts to convince a happily married couple that their daughter is actually his daughter reincarnated. I mostly decided to watch it because it was directed by Robert Wise and like he's a real person and starred Marsha Mason and Anthony Hopkins and they're real people. And it's set on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is where I grew up in 1977, which is around where I grew up. 
and I figured there might be some cool location shots or, it, you know, at least I hoped so. And I was very excited when the second scene in the movie is a weirdly, by today's standards, long montage of the family just like spending a day doing stuff in Central Park, uh, which was delightful to me. And then right after that, Marsha Mason is out on the street. And this was my favorite thing, which I assume was an accident. There's just a car in the background, which I assume was just like a car driving by in real life. And if you had asked me, I would not have been able to tell you anything about the cable TV company of my childhood the, you know, before it became like Time Warner and Spectrum and all that. But there was this station wagon on the street, fully done up in like the livery of the Manhattan Cable Company. And in like a flash, I had this sense memory of like, oh, that's what our cable box looked like when I was a child. It had these brown and orange stripes and this like stylized M logo. And it made me so happy. It was like so ugly and so beautiful at the same time. <laughs> I also actually quite enjoyed the movie. Um, hopefully you can watch it. it like uh, apart from uh, Marsha Mason and Anthony Hopkins, it's like every character actor of the mid to late seventies is in it. There's quite a long trial sequence. So there's like lots of lawyers and judges. It's a cool movie, kind of Rosemary's baby vibes. Anyway, Audrey Rose. <laughs> it's really an honor to have with us one of the world's greatest recording stars. And here she is. Ladies and gentlemen, Helen Reddy. Helen Reddy singer. Actress, feminist, Australian. Born into a showbiz family in Melbourne in 1941, Helen got her start early, taking the stage at four years old as part of her parents' vaudeville act. After a teenage rebellion that found her quitting showbiz and trying for a life of domesticity, including an early marriage at age 20 to an older man that soon made her into a single mom, Helen returned to singing. Her first big break came at age 25 when she appeared on the television program Bandstand, winning a talent contest with the prize of a trip to New York and an audition for a record label. That audition didn't go anywhere, but Helen stuck around in the States, her three-year-old daughter in tow. Although she didn't find professional success in New York, she did meet her second husband and eventual manager, Jeff Wald. They moved first to Chicago, where Helen recorded her first charting single, One Way Ticket, which reached 83 in Australia, but then they eventually landed in L.A., where she recorded a couple more singles that did well enough to get her a deal with Capitol Records. The second of these, I Believe in Music, was paired with a cover of I Don't Know How to Love Him as the B-side. That B-side reached number eight on the pop chart of the Canadian magazine RPM. The following year, Helen had her breakthrough career-defining hit with I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar, which she co-wrote as well as sang. I am woman, watch me grow, see me standing toe to toe, as I spread my loving arms across the land, but I'm still an embryo, with a long, long way to go, until I'll make my brother God, love a rock trombone line. That that <laughs> that band is working on that song. That's actually the second recording of it. She had one that, like, believe it or not, wasn't quite as hip. <laughs> and when that didn't hit, they went in with a new arrangement, and that was the one that took off. Uh, it hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 in December of 1972, and it earned Ready a Grammy Award for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance, making her, I believe, the first Australian to ever win a Grammy. Uh, I Am Woman was one of those songs, like Send of the Clowns was, that we talked about on the Judy Collins episode, that didn't perform particularly well on its first release, but it resonated with listeners who would call in to request it on the radio, which drove it to re-enter the charts, and then, eventually, the stratosphere. 
It's what Chris Melanfi of the podcast Hit Parade would call a legacy hit. One that didn't do well until it did extremely well later on. In the biopic, I Am Woman, there's a suggestion that some of her early success came because she and her husband and their friends basically spent all their free time calling radio stations around the country to request her songs. But I don't think that was the case with this song. I think this one actually did have sort of an organic groundswell of support. Helen caused a bit of a stir when she won the Grammy because in her acceptance speech, she thanked God because she makes everything possible. (laughs) And in 1970-whatever, that was still a very controversial thing to say, especially on national television. Uh, In 1974, she also became an American citizen, which was due in part to her desire to be more deeply involved in democratic politics. And she would go on to serve a three-year term on the California Parks and Recs Board. Uh, However, this caused a bit of a scandal in Australia, and she would eventually become a dual citizen. Uh, Around this time, she did a piece for 60 Minutes Australia, where they really, like, confront her for these two scandals. And it's hilarious to me from a 2022 vantage, and we will include that clip in the show notes. Hmm. She would spend the next few years releasing hit after hit, including two number ones, Delta Dawn and Angie Baby. She became an international superstar, touring the world, headlining in Las Vegas, and partying in Hollywood. Apparently, she was also very supportive of fellow Australian Olivia Newton-John, and she was the person who introduced Olivia to Alan Carr, producer of Grease. Still the word. By the time she appeared on The Muppet Show, Helen's music career was starting to cool down. She had a minor acting career, fronting a summer replacement variety show in 1973, appearing in the film Airport 75, which netted her a Golden Globe nomination. Uh, And most notably in my world, she starred in the Disney film Pete's Dragon in 1977. Uh, And she sang the song Kennel on the Water, which was nominated for an Oscar. As the 80s rolled around, she switched record labels and ended her marriage. Uh, Her ex-husband had a very bad coke addiction. Um, Although, uh, again, in the biopic, we learned that he has since gotten clean and been sober for 33 years. She eventually accused her ex-husband of interfering in her career, causing further professional decline in the 80s. During this era, she did find success on the stage, on Broadway and in the West End, as well as in regional theater, starring in shows like Blood Brothers, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, and Shirley Valentine. She made occasional recordings over the next couple of decades, but by 2002, she decided it was time to retire from performing. She returned to Australia, earning a hypnotherapy degree, and she went into private practice. After about a decade, she realized that she missed performing and she began giving concerts again. And she even appeared at the 2017 Women's March in Los Angeles to sing a bit of I Am Woman. Wait, a bit? A bit. Like, she didn't sing, do a full-on performance, but like... Hey, why didn't you sing the whole thing? <laughs> um, she might not have sung the whole thing because by that point she was suffering from dementia. Ah. Uh, and she passed away in 2020 at the age of 78. So... For me, my first exposure to Helen Reddy was definitely Pete's Dragon. I think I've mentioned before that I had like a tape of like Disney Greatest Hits and Kendall in the Water was one of those songs. And that, along with the song from The Rescuers, both used to freak me out because they had this sort of like haunting quality that just did not fit with the rest of the Disney songs. And I, I, I can't put my finger on exactly why, but they just like, they taught my young soul about the potential for loss and I did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I eventually got to know the rest of her music and uh, she's an acquired taste for me, but I have long since acquired it and I really dig it. Anyone else have Helen Reddy memories? They sort of begin and end with Pete's dragon for me. And even that is, you know, 
pretty vague. I never went any further. Yeah, that same experience you mentioned of finding Candle on the Water out of place on my Disney Hits CD. They really begin and end with uh, I Am Woman for me, uh, a song which I don't think I had ever heard all the way through until researching this episode. And the main thing I learned is that that embryo lyric, uh, which is a reference in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which I knew was I Am Woman, but I thought was made up. (laughs) <laughs> like I, I knew, I knew that 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 they were referencing "I Am Woman," but I I thought that those specific lyrics were made up, and I was shocked to learn that they are actually in the song. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's kind of it. But I like that song a lot. It's funny to listen to "I Am Woman" now and think that it was such like a shit stirring song because it's so cringe, like it's so square and so cheesy. But like, it really did make waves and and became an anthem for a movement and it's the seventies, man. I wish, I wish it were better. Uh, only, and I don't, I don't actually, I, I really like it. I just, um, listening to it, f- like to make a clip of it tonight. Um, I was actually really aware, like I, I said earlier, how hard the band is working. Cause it, it's like this real, like powerful anthemic, Thing. the orchestration is really cool and her voice isn't quite up to it and i would love to hear like any number of people cover it but they're probably not going to for all the reasons you just said which is kind of a bummer like no shade to helen ready i think her performance is fine but i'd love to hear like kelly clarkson do it who's probably the one person likely to right, like- right i mean and actually maybe she has i should i should look before we finish this recording and see if she has because it's it's I, it's a fun song if you don't listen to the lyrics too hard. Why don't you get me started? Christy. Yes. What'd you think? <laughs> oh, okay, so the first time through, I viscerally hated this episode. Hmm. And I, I really had to sit and unpack that. And I, I figured out that part of it is because Helen Reddy has the same haircut as this terrible woman named Jan, who was my Girl Scout troop leader. <laughs> And and she hated me. This woman hated me. And I Googled her and she passed away last year. RIP. But, oh. uh, dark turn. Yeah. Tr- trust me for, for me as well. Um, but I, uh, yeah. And so I'm like, okay, that's, that's not fair to hold against it. So then I'm like, okay, what is it that you're really feeling here? And it's, Mostly that it feels so derivative of things the show has already done much better elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Like all I could hear in my head the first time through was that John Cleese French guard character in Holy Grail saying, we've already got one. It's very nice. Like, <laughs> I, I, it's just like every single thing in this. I, I just, we, we've, we've been there. We've done it. It's, it's redundant, but you know, like with the second watch, I was able to appreciate some of it. It's not like they're doing anything badly here, like qu- quite the opposite. It's just not surprising. So, you know, it's uh, it's fine. <laughs> David, as our, our I think our biggest talent ready fan. Yeah, you know, I I don't love this episode. I don't hate this episode. Burgard, as I have mentioned, is not one of my favorite characters, and the fact that he has so much screen time in this episode does not weigh in its favor, especially because that, that means that Helen Reddy is sort of relegated to performance clips, except for 
one brief thing in a dressing room. So you don't really get a sense of who she is. So it feels a little bit like a series of missed opportunities to me. That said, there are some bits that I love. The the soft shoe number is hysterical. I actually like most of the songs in this episode. So I'm not sure why I don't have warmer overall feelings for it, but it's probably Bo's fault. Michal? <laughs> um, Muppets falling down is all I want in life. So <laughs> there are about seven minutes in the middle of this episode that carry over for me into the rest and give me very warm feelings about the episode overall, even though the backstage plot is only just fine. Making fun of Beauregard for being dumb is only just fine. <laughs> and Helen Reddy, uh, as talented as she is, is also in this context, only just fine. She, she seems very sweet and she's a talented singer. I don't know if she just doesn't have much presence on screen or if it's the haircut or if she doesn't have chemistry with the Muppets. Um, but yeah, I felt like all the moments with her on stage were the weakest ones. And when she's not on screen, this is a fun little episode. Ouch. Sorry, everybody. Uh, I liked it. I thought it was fine. It's <laughs> right smack in the middle. Yep. Okay, Scooter. I'll be there. Ready or not. Yeah. Did you mean to make that joke? Well, I meant to make that joke before someone else did. You think we'd stoop that low? Hey, three to get ready. Lower. Lower. <laughs> What is up with her accent? Does anybody know? She's Australian. But, but she, she lived in the States Australian. for most of her adult life? Yeah. I yeah. I hadn't questioned it until I found out she was Australian. <laughs> That's all. Just yeah, I fan. forgot that she was Australian until I started doing research for this episode. Yeah. It only pops up a few times that you suddenly remember she's not entirely American. Anyway... <laughs> That's uh, Helen Reddy anticipating the inevitable uh, at the open of the episode. And meanwhile, Statler and Waldorf discover some unwelcome seatmates in their bok, 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 box. Hey, there's chickens in our seats. <laughs> That's all. They just throw some chickens out of the balcony. It's a good time. Gonzo blows his trumpet and little animated music notes emanate out of it. This is my favorite of these so far. He looks so happy. He's like, oh my gosh, look at what came out. I made music. <laughs> They're very cute. A little pixelated on a bigger screen, but sure. what are you going to do? All right, let's go backstage. The Muppet Show backstage. So after weeks and weeks of you guys hearing me kvetch about how we're seeing Beauregard and nobody's been properly introduced to him, okay. Let's properly introduce Beauregard, everybody. This is Beauregard. What a mess this place is. Hey, Beauregard, I've got a job for you. Oh, good. Just look at this mess. Oh, okay, that sounds easy enough. <laughs> Beauregard, the floor needs sweeping. There's a broom around here someplace. Oh, yes, herders. Well, well, step on it. Okay. <laughs> hey, that's a neat trick. Beauregard, use some elbow grease. You know, it's pretty amazing that Beauregard has exactly two character traits as he fully develops, which is that he's dumb and he's very strong. But at this point, they hadn't yet figured out the very strong thing. So he's a Muppet whose only character trait 
is he's very dumb. Was there really a hole in the Muppet <laughs> spectrum that needed to be filled by a character who is very dumb? <laughs> yeah, because like if when these things happen with Fozzie, like it's because like Fozzie misunderstood something, or you know Fozzie's in a panic, or you know like there's always like a secondary thing happening. It's not just oh he's he's really dumb, like and and it's. I think that's a big part of what I didn't like about this episode is it just felt like a lot of the same joke. It was, it's like being handed like, and the thing is I don't, I don't mind Borgard. Like I, I like him in small doses, but it's like being handled a bowl of sprinkles instead of like <laughs> a bowl of ice cream with sprinkles on top. Right. I, Oh, wait, wait, wait. I just want to put a word in for a bowl of sprinkles. <laughs> <Don't> knock knock <laughs> until you've tried it. Okay. okay. <laughs> Do you Fair. have them with milk? No, 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 just with a spoon. Ew. Wow. Oh. I didn't think that could get worse, and then Macaulay made it worse. <laughs> it would be worse Milk. if you tried it with orange juice. Oh. I don't know that it would. At least orange juice is good. That's how my grandfather had cereal. It's a terrible idea. Don't do oh. it. Why would... Okay. Justice for George. Like, you had a almost competent janitor, and... I mean, maybe he just retired. We don't know what happened to George, but we know he's not there. And train station in the Loretta Lynn episode. (laughs) Somehow (laughs) this guy got hired. Questionable hiring practices all around at the Muppet Show. Yeah, it does make you wonder if this is like Scooter's uncle's favorite stepchild or like why is he there? I don't know. I mean, he's this bumbling Amelia Bedelia type, except he never fixes anything with a pie at the end. To your earlier earlier point, Michal, this did air as the season premiere. So uh, uh-huh. in 1978, audiences at least got to meet Beauregard in the proper order, unlike Annie Sue. Yes. Well, here he is. So Kermit has asked Beauregard to use some elbow grease with the implication of do some work and clean up. Beauregard does succeed in cleaning up Everything looks very tidy and very sleek. A little bit too sleek, in fact. Well, I couldn't find any elbow grease. I expect not. So I used axle grease. Beauregard, <laughs> 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 what kind of an idiot are you? Oh, I didn't know there was a choice. <laughs> I tried to learn what axle grease was, and everything in the article that I was reading sounded like a euphemism, and I had to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Beauregard just put some grease on the floor, and everybody's falling down, and it's wonderful. Kermit falls down a flight of stairs. Gladys <laughs> walks by holding a tray full of plates, which just fly straight up into the air when she falls down. Floyd falls down, and then stands right back up, still holding his base, and says, what a drag. Um, it's great. And Fozzie does a whole soft shoe number that was devised entirely so that he could just keep falling down while his backup dancers are just soft-shoeing obliviously in the background, which is a thing of joy and beauty forever. always funny <laughs> and he just keeps he just gets up and keeps falling and he does a fall that lasts for longer <laughs> and the dancers don't at the very end they do but they're fine 
Yeah. Like they just keep doing their thing and he just keeps falling and falling and falling. Yeah, they're just also those whatnots are really cute. They're little wigs. I enjoyed them. This is also at least the second time and not the last time that we're gonna see a soft shoe number done to the song T for two. And like I know that Larry Grossman knows other songs that can be used for soft shoe. Like what the fuck, Muppets? We're also gonna get T for two again really soon in a different context. Here's the thing, though. T for two is one of those, like, baked-in trope. Well, I mean, it is a banger. Uh, <laughs> but, like, T for two, as the, like, er, soft shoe number is, like, a trope by this point. Yeah. So, I think it's more that than anything. Just yeah. walk into it. Doesn't bother me. Fozzie's falling down. Nothing's bothering me. No, it's great. I have one question and one comment. The question is, where is Gladys coming from with that tray? Like, she's coming from the stage, it looks like, to the canteen. Well, somebody ordered a sandwich, I guess. I guess so. The comment is, Kermit's fall down the stairs is just such incredible puppetry. I made a GIF for the show page, and then I made another GIF in slow motion for the show page (laughs) that I just encourage everybody to check out because it's, it's... glorious yeah i I watched it a few times just to watch them switch shots and try to figure out what was going on it is it's glorious so all of the the slippery backstage and slippery on stage issues will resolve later Uh, kermit advises bo to spread some sand around bo complies with too much sand when he learns it's too much he sweeps it quote next door Next door turns out to be the stage. So with a sand-covered stage, we get a desert finale, which we'll talk about later. Oh, buckle up, gang, because we got a lot of music to talk about. And a lot of good, interesting music. But yeah, we're going to start with a song that my guess is you've probably heard before. This is set in Versailles for some reason. Yeah, you've heard it before, but you have you heard Marie Antoinette sing it? Yeah, it's funny. The Disney Plus captions described the harpsichord intro as Rococo. And I was like, wow, that is the most accurate and specific descriptor you've ever given a piece of music. (laughs) Stately Rococo music. Yeah. Ethnic folk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or upbeat folk tune. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of upbeat folk music. Anyway, uh, it's staying alive. Heard of it. <laughs> I I, th- I thought maybe some somebody here would have Southerners do CPR. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it is used to teach people CPR. Apparently, the the beat is uh, the the proper one for chest compressions. I recently learned there's a, there's a whole playlist. Really, some, some hospital made a Spotify playlist. Uh, oh. I'll try to find that. I love that. And, and we'll put it Great. in the show notes. 
Um, yeah, so this is a song uh, written and performed by the Bee Gees. Uh, it, it was uh, a huge, 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 huge hit in 1977. It was written for uh, and on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which, uh, like Greece, was omnipresent at this particular time in pop music. And I, I don't want to go down uh, too huge a tangent, but I love that uh, the film Saturday Night Fever, which is the quintessential disco movie is based on uh an article that was almost completely fabricated about the disco scene (laughs) from the new yorker of all the new yorker yeah if you just watch saturday night fever you don't think this feels like the new yorker extended cinematic universe yeah yeah but also like famously like fact check crazy the new yorker yeah yeah and yet this article about the you know darkness of the disco scene it's almost completely Made up. Yeah, so uh, the song, a uh, huge hit, uh, number one on the Hot 100 for four weeks in February of 1978. It was the second of six consecutive number one singles for the Bee Gees, which tied them with the Beatles, and that record was broken by Whitney Houston. Uh, and it also, unsurprisingly, went to number one on Cashbox. And a few other stats for you. It's n- number 189 on that terrible Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Songs list that we've talked about. And I just discovered, and I'm surprised it took me this long to discover this, uh, that that list was apparently like updated and refreshed by Rolling Stone in 2021. And in the new list, it got bumped up to 99. The new list is better, but it's still not great. But in the interim, between the original list and now, there are f- fewer good songs written somehow that supersede this one. Okay. Yeah. I think yeah. if I were to hazard a guess, given the timing, I suspect that the original list was made entirely by white people. Yeah. And they reconvened a more diverse panel sometime after 2020 to revisit this question. And that might be why some of these songs got reordered. I think that's correct because the original 2004 list had like a Rolling Stone as the best song. And the 2021 list has uh, Aretha Franklin's respect. So Mm -hmm. I, I think, yeah. Um, But the new one is still not great because in no universe is strawberry fields forever. The best Beatles song. Like what? No. (laughs) Anyway. Um, it, it's all yeah, this song yeah. staying alive, which is what we're actually talking about <laughs> is, uh, also number nine on the AFI 100 years, 100 songs list that we've mentioned a few times. The one that over the rainbow is number one on. And in 2011, it was voted the UK's fifth favorite Bee Gees song, <laughs> uh, on a, a documentary series called the nation's favorite, uh, where each episode has, uh, a national survey ranking the songs of particular artists. How deep is your love was their favorite and rightfully so, because that is a lovely song. And I highly recommend uh, if you haven't checked it out already uh, on HBO max, there's a documentary that came out a couple years ago called how do you mend a broken heart about the Bee Gees. And there's this whole section about the time period in which they made this album. And uh, they talk about the creation of the song and how they, spliced together tape of a manually played drum beat to create a perfect drum loop for the song. And it's really astonishing. But yeah, this is fun. Uh, Louise gold is crushing it singing in the background. Like this was a really good, I think showcase of Louise gold. Although I will say (laughs) 
from a puppetry standpoint, there's this extended dance break where a bunch of the pigs are dancing in a clump, but for some reason, Annie Sue is like doing her own thing in the back and she looks like she's like full out dissociating. Like she's having some sort of moment. And I mean, everybody else except for her is wearing what is meant to be, what is meant to look like a powdered wig, I guess. And yeah. she just has her own hair. So yeah. presumably she has thrown off her hair. Oh, I and thought that doing she her own was thing. a servant. I think so too. Yeah, I think oh, she. No, there, there's a separate like servant who's crawling around on the floor, and the only reason I know it's not Annie Sue is because it has the like a face that looks a lot like the Muppet Babies, but it just happens to have a snout, and it really bothers me. Yeah. Well, it's the baby pig, I think, but it has a little wig, so now it's like a toddler pig. Oh, interesting. I think. I thought she was a scullery maid. Yes, there's definitely a, a maid. I, I mean, the whole the storytelling in this whole thing is wild. Uh, so, look, it so, really only needs two beats to be successful, right? Well, right, but but it has so many more because it's like a, a five minute song, uh, right? So it's so if you haven't watched the episode, it's basically all of these um, you know posh pigs in Versailles. Uh, I guess at the dawn of the French Revolution. <laughs> so the very last beat is the reveal of a guillotine outside the window which they all suddenly realize is there and and the party's over and they scream and run away i mean what a what a choice from the minute the song started i put it together like oh staying alive and they're in the french oh yeah revolution like i spent the rest of the song wondering like how graphic was it gonna get so the fact that it only ended on a reveal of seeing guillotine and not having to watch any like Muppet pig heads roll across the screen. I took as a blessing. <laughs> I mean, there's something like, so like strangely dark about like, actually the choice to have them like partying and not know. And then just to have it be like, Oh shit, there it is. I, like it's almost darker this way <laughs> than like the extreme comedy of violence. I don't know. I mean, I like it a lot. But I think, I mean, I, I wonder if the Annie Sue choice is is deliberate. Like, if she knows something's up, and that like that maid who is like, like, is she is she scared because she's being mistreated, or does she know that something's coming? Like, there's a lot of weird things hiding? happening. Yeah, like there's weirdly I a lot. Don't going know on. if there's all that much going, or if there are all that many layers. I mean, maybe <laughs> like, not. Just but then, pigs and they're dancing, and it's great. But they're not just pigs; they're dancing. Is the point? Like that maid is not. That maid is having another plot, like another another character thing. I thought she was just drumming on the floor. I don't know. Um. Have I ever told the story on the podcast of when I saw the Sofia Coppola Marie Antoinette th- movie in the theater? I don't think so. No. So yeah, so I went to see the Marie Antoinette movie in the theater, the Kirsten Dunst movie, and like eighty percent of the way through the movie, there's this point where you know, some like servant or, you know, lady in waiting or, or something comes in. It's something like, you know, like my lady, the, the, the mob is at the gates. I mean, something like I, I haven't seen this movie since I saw it in the theater, but there, <laughs> somebody comes in to warn her that, that somebody's coming. And the girl behind me gasped and said, they're going to kill her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh no! Yeah, amazing. And yeah. we should say Piggy is explicitly Marie Antoinette in this. Yeah. That's the setup. By and Kermit. her dress looks fantastic. The whole thing, the set yeah. is like the set has a mirrored wall, all this furniture. Like they spent money on this one-off. I wonder if the set is going to come back in another context. I hope the costumes do. 
Yeah, the wigs, all of it. Yeah. Like, this was not a cheap number. I'll say this for them. What's that? They don't show favoritism. They offend everyone. Our first Helen Reddy number takes us into the recording studio of all places. And your fortune has all been told And you know, buddies, I love you How can you be happy? How can you be singing? How can you be anything but low down, saggy, and blue? Sad but true so, if, if you were feeling a bit of a, you know, sunny day sweeping the clouds away vibe from this, it's because it's a song called Blue that was written by noted favorite songwriter of Frank Sinatra, Joe Raposo, <laughs> uh, in 1977 for an animated movie uh, called Raggedy Ann and Andy that was later turned into a Broadway show in 1986 that was a big flop uh, that had uh, songs by Joe Raposo and a book by William Gibson, the playwright who wrote The Miracle Worker. And sure. Yeah, I I have to share the first part of the synopsis of the Broadway show that I found because it is fully bonkers, okay? Bear in mind that this is a Raggedy Ann musical, right? Young Marcella is suffering from psychological trauma. Her mother ran away with another man, which drove her father to drink. Her dog tried to eat her pet bird, which killed them both. It's apparently <gasps> the first number called Gingham and Yarm. In Marcella's bedroom, a trio of doctors give differing but equally dire warnings regarding the youngster's ailments until Papa throws them out. Lightening the mood, Papa presents her with a doll that he created, which he names Raggedy Ann. Marcella complains that she has no heart. <laughs> so Papa pulls a candy heart from a box and stitches it to the doll. He sings his daughter a lullaby, claiming that her toys spring to life when she's asleep. Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's just like the first couple of numbers Wait, did you Wait, did you all not grow up with this movie? No, no, no. Oh, so I, I don't know why, but this is a movie I have like both very distinct and very indistinct memories of. Distinct in that, like, I know I saw it and I feel like maybe it was one that we had from TV and I saw more than once. But also, I remember hating it, but also being fascinated by it because I knew, like, I was interested in these characters and I liked that it had songs, but also it's just like in the way that a lot of kids' movies from the 70s are, just sort of like an overblown disaster. Uh, so uh, I, I am endlessly fascinated by it. Does it end as horribly as the synopsis that Christy gave us? Implies? As I said, only indistinct memories of the actual content. Uh-huh. And that's just the setup. I mean, I I think it probably goes on to be lighter than where it starts. But it's one of those like it, like quest caper kind of things sure. where it's just like. There's so many locations and so many characters and just like, who fucking cares? <laughs> yeah. Also, weirdly, in the stage show, this is sung by a camel. And yet this is not where we get the camel in this episode. <laughs> no, instead we're in a recording studio. Yeah, a recording studio in which everyone is wearing headphones except for the singer, which drives me bananas. <laughs> <laughs> well, not everyone. Uh, they don't have them on Ralph. But, She's uh, just wandering around. Yeah. Yeah, holding a mic that may or may not be connected. Yeah, with a, with a skinny mic. I'm just like, you know, are you not worried about feedback? Like, what are we doing here? We get to see Zoop play the flute. That's nice. That stood out to me that Zoop's playing the flute. Also, <laughs> uh, uh, Floyd is drinking off Foster's. 
Yes. Which I realize now that I know that Helen Reddy is Australian might have a meaning that I missed when I was watching the episode. <laughs> but also, I don't think we tend to see Muppets drinking alcohol all that often. <laughs> so that was interesting. Well, I think you would have to know, like, you'd have to be pretty eagle-eyed to recognize that it's a beer. Yeah, like, it's turned in such a, well, it's kind of obviously a beer can and not like it's a Coke. A soda can. But yeah, it is turned in such a way that you can't see the whole, like, in that way that they do to sort of not have to get the rights to a logo. Um, but you can see enough of it that it's pretty recognizable. I mean, Kermit introduced this as a an informal session in the Muppets' private studio. So I was a little surprised that the first thing we see is the recording light on. Okay, I thought they were just hanging out and jamming, which is the vibe they're all giving, but also they're recording and also they're engineers talking right. about the levels. Uh, and it's also on the stage. Yes. And can we talk about the, the trio of, of backup singers who oh god please (laughs) (laughs) these are not Uh, i want to be clear this is the second week in a row with a trio of weird looking backup singers but these are not the same ones as james coco's short people backup singers i checked totally different puppets yeah and and they don't seem to be whatnots unless that's unless these are like new model whatnots we just haven't seen them enough to get used to how they get moved around i don't know they're very different, and one of them looks like a blow-up sex doll. I hated her. I hated her Wait, so much. The one on the left? <laughs> the one yeah. on the yeah, on yeah. Stage right, yeah, on the left. I, I thought she looked like she was made by an intern, and they only let it be in the episode because everyone felt bad. <laughs> like, it, it just did not look up to the same level of quality as even the other two backup singers. But all three of them look like, with the, the big eyes and the big lips thing, like, they don't quite look like on-model Muppets. But yeah, the the one is definitely trying to impersonate the other two and not doing a great job of it. There is something very 70s about them that I like, right, in their styling. Uh, the two that look good, not the one, the, one that, <laughs> the one whose face is broken does not look good. But right, there's the, like, the, the wigs and the makeup, they, they, they belong there. But yeah, they do sort of look like they came from a different puppet show. <laughs> like they wanted in from a Sid and Marty Cross special, maybe. And or just like... 42nd Street in 1977. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, could be. They feel very 70s. <laughs> we should mention that uh, there these two sound engineers, one of them is named Roger and is voiced by the actual audio mixer on the Muppet show or one, one of two audio mixers and this guy is Roger Knight and his puppet looks like him and he voices the one line. So that's cute. That's fun. But they also talk about the levels and say animal is too loud. And instead of turning animal down, they try to tell animal to turn himself down, which does not work. Well, also Helen Reddy keeps wandering over to him with her mic. So maybe that's why. <laughs> that's never going to go well. And this is a song that Helen Reddy had recorded on one of her albums. I like it. I think it's about, it makes me sad that there's not, as far as I know, an album of like all the songs from Raggedy Ann and Andy. Although... There is one of those like obsessive fan communities that has documented like every single piece of media related to this musical on YouTube. What a great internet. You know, if I had a voice like Helen Reddy, I'd never be on the Muppet Show. Right. If you had a voice like Helen Reddy, you'd be in a sideshow. Happy 1978, everybody. Right. Uh, so yeah, so we have a few sort of like throwaway musical references that we're not going to spend a ton of time on. So we have a bit with Animal and the Swedish Chef in Helen's dressing room where they 
try to sing happy birthday to her. And then she's like, it's not my birthday. And then they start singing jingle bells. I think we've talked about happy birthday before, uh, but shout out to my fellow Louisvillians, Mildred and Patty Hill, who wrote it in 1893 and shout out. Took two people to write that song. There we go. Uh, Uh, makes me so happy yeah and great news uh, for isaac jaffe uh it is now definitely in the public domain <laughs> i'm so glad for isaac uh, yeah so glad for all of them uh and uh jingle bells i want to talk about just because i learned some wild shit are you ready <laughs> bring it so okay so jingle bells was uh written in 1857 by uh, james lord pierpont and Written is very strong because I found an amazing article that we'll have in the show notes written by a professor at Boston University named Kaina Hamill. And she claimed basically that the whole thing was like a copy paste job of lines from other songs to make money and that there's nothing original about it. And apparently at the time, like sleigh rides, like, like, like there was like a period of time where sleigh songs were very popular And it's partially because sleigh rides were one of the only opportunities that couples had to spend time together unchaperoned. And the song uh, was written for a minstrel show. America. Fuck everything. Yeah. So (laughs) it was not a Christmas song. It was originally a racist song with sexual undertones. (laughs) Jingling undertones. (laughs) Muppetergy, here to ruin Christmas. Um, <laughs> Not time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we also talked about uh, T for Two popping up in the uh, Fozzie Falling Over soft shoe number. We will talk about it again. We've talked about it before. Yeah. There's also a throwaway reference to Call Me Irresponsible in our uh, vet's hospital this week. And We've talked about that before. That popped up in the Judy Collins episode when Piggy sang it at J.P. Gross. So, uh, yeah, we won't necessarily cover old ground when there's such strange and interesting ground to cover elsewhere. I do have a question about the chef and animal singing Happy Birthday. Did they get a pitch from a wooden spoon at the start of that? Yes, (laughs) Yes. they did. (laughs) Love it. Also, and this is this is definitely a, a Philip Casson thing. There's like weird continuity from the scene before because we see them walking towards the dressing room from the outside as the scene before is ending, which I feel like is not a thing that normally happens. We just would you know cut from one thing to the next, um, and I like that. But it also was this weird moment of like, why are Animal and the Swedish Chef walking together, and where are they going? And then we find out where they're going. And it still doesn't make any sense that they would be together doing anything. It doesn't make any sense that they pop into her dressing room and start singing happy birthday. <laughs> no, no, none of it makes any sense. But <laughs> right. Uh, but even less so because it's those two. But yeah, it was a nice moment of, wait, what? <laughs> Seeing them up on the balcony. Yeah. Uh, well, we get something quite different and frankly, a bit pathetic in our UK spot. Mm-hmm. 
it's the Panatique Sonata, or uh, more formally, uh, Ludwig van Beethoven's Piano Sonata Number no. 8 in C minor, Opus 13. And it was written in 1798, uh, when Beethoven was 27 years old, and published the following year. And as is sometimes the case with uh, very famous pieces of music, I found nothing interesting to share with you about this piece <laughs> of music, uh, other than that it is beloved by uh, many people throughout the generations, as it should be. It's a beautiful piece of music. Uh, and if I understood right, the, the name was actually given to it by the, the publisher uh, who felt that it evoked very melancholy feelings, which is fair. Beloved by piano teachers the world over. Yes. It always reminds me a little bit of the song Somewhere Out There from An American Tale. Yes. It has a similar rising Ooh. line in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had that same association and it short-circuited my brain. And until I realized that this was Patetique, I thought he was playing an American Tale and I got very confused. Unlike my short-circuiting uh, American Tale association, which is that in my head there's just this Mobius strip that exists between there are no cats in America and the song ladies made for the musical Titanic. <laughs> also, also true. <laughs> They're basically the same song. And like the same story beats also. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. You should write that arrangement and get it to someone to perform in a cabaret. Yeah. Yeah. Or perform it in your own cabaret. Let's do this. Getting us somewhat back on track. I love the bust of Beethoven so much. Yeah, I was happy to I see him again. I love that he's bored. <laughs> it yeah. me. And that he admonishes Rolf to stop humming. To, to stop humming, that he's dozing off and hoping nobody will notice. Yeah. Does he have like Very something relatable. in his mouth? I think it's just sure. the way he's sculpted. Okay. I was looking more at the detail this time around and appreciating yeah. the work and also getting a little confused around the mouth. Yeah, there's something going on there. I noticed it too. Funnily enough, we get a second song by familiar Muppet songwriter in this episode. Remember when the circus came to town And you were frightened by the clown Wasn't it nice to be around Someone that you knew Someone who was big and strong And looking out for you And me against the world Sometimes it feels like You and me against the world Speaking of falling asleep This is You and Me Against the World, uh, which was written by Paul Williams and Kenneth Asher in 1974. Those guys sound familiar. Yeah, they, they sure they? do. Uh, they, they are uh, the fellows who wrote the, the Rainbow Connection. And I learned uh, what Kenneth Asher's relationship to Paul Williams was. He was a member of his band uh, and, and a frequent collaborator. Paul Williams uh, originally recorded this himself. But the same year he had Helen Reddy record it, and her version went to number nine on the Hot 100, number 10 on Cashbox. Cashbox almost always is a little harsher. But number one on the adult contemporary slash easy listening chart, uh, which was Helen Reddy's fourth of six consecutive adult contemporary number ones. That feels right. Yeah, that, that seems to be her lane. And this was the first song uh, that 
Paul and uh, Kenny Asher wrote together. And it began as a joke. They were goofing in the studio. They were talking about their favorite songwriters. And it's like, yeah, they'd write a song and sound like this. Ha ha ha. And then Kenny Asher was like, we could maybe have a hit with this. <laughs> so I love that it started just as a total goof. And uh, what's funny is, so in uh, the intro to this in The Muppet Show, she talks about how her daughter was on the original recording and the reason for that was Helen Reddy heard the song and was like, this is a little bit like paternalistic and condescending to be a love song. <laughs> if, I think it makes more sense if it's like a, you know, parent child thing. And Paul Williams was like, oh, okay. So, uh, yeah. I do like the idea of a woman singing to a man. Remember that time you were scared of the clowns? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a man singing to a woman. Yeah, no, not okay. But I do like the reversal. <laughs> We do have a clip of Helen Reddy's recording because I have a lot of feelings about this song uh, in all directions, but the inclusion of her daughter's voice just strikes me as absurd. And I don't think you get quite how absurd it is unless you hear it. Well, so I went one absurder. So (laughs) you asked me to clip this and I went, I went to YouTube for it. And, and one of the things that came up was a live version, which uh a has real um to all the parents and all the children in the world vibes and <laughs> and then also like so she she trotted out her daughter for this and i don't know how old her daughter was when they actually did the record but she looks way too old in this clip i i beg you all to go to the show notes and just watch the very beginning of this youtube clip uh but let's hear it now this is my latest single and uh, it's a song especially for anyone in the audience who has ever tried to raise a child alone. Tell me again, Mommy. You and me against the world. Sometimes it feels like you and me against the world. Okay, it's her latest single, so I guess it's that's how old the child was. She looks much older than I would have expected from the recording, and she looks like a hostage in this video. <laughs> She looks so unhappy to be there. Tell me again, mommy does have cool story, bro. Tell it again. <laughs> right? and, that's, and that's all, that's all there. I really think there's more dialogue on this right. thing. That's it. Here's the thing about this. You know, they're, they're like sitting in like the forest of despair, like at sunset. It's and like, it's very pretty to look at and it's very sweet, but like, it's also very reminiscent of, the Sandy Duncan try to remember. And Senator, I served with Sandy Duncan. I did a bomb of cocaine during the dance break of a Barry Manilow song with Sandy Duncan. I knew Sandy Duncan. Senator, you're no Sandy Duncan. And I know Sandy Duncan's haircut and this haircut is not working as well. (laughs) Not today, Jan. The other part of this that always struck me as weird and almost inappropriate is the fact that it's, in her version, a song where it's a mother singing to a child, and then it explicitly talks about, like, let's let's picture a time when I have died and you don't have me anymore. And that, I, especially, like, like, when I first heard this song when I was a kid, I was like, that is dark and weird, especially if her child is, like, sitting there with her. It strikes me as a weird thing for her to sing to Kermit, I think combined with the vibe that I already get from Candle in the Water and 
therefore associate with her particular voice anyway. Like it just, this song gives me like weird, uncomfortable feelings. And then like fast forward many years later, when my mom did die, like the first time I heard this song after that, I was like, no, no, no. Like this is too much. So it's just, I, I, I appreciate that she was trying to find like a little corner of pop music that was maybe not totally overexplored, but it, I just feel like the vibe of this song is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the good news is our next number is like thousands upon thousands of miles from this in every possible way. (laughs) Except both Australian. Tommy Kangaroo Down Tommy Kangaroo Down Tommy Kangaroo Down All together now Tommy Kangaroo Down Yep. It's Timey Kangaroo Down, Sport. <laughs> That's the actual title of the song. And it was written by an Australian singer named Rolf Harris in 1957. It became a hit around the world in the 60s. There were two different recordings of it, one in 1960 and then another in 1963. And it was the later one that uh, was a hit in the States. And uh, it was inspired by a very soon-to-be-future Muppet Show guest star Harry Belafonte's songs, which you can kind of hear in it a little bit. I mean, there's also a little bit of like a skiffle quality to it. But... uh, you wouldn't know from this uh, that that's a song about an Australian stockman on his deathbed. <laughs> How do you figure? Huh? There, I mean, there are like I think like like verses that like feed into the the chorus. And what's funny is so Rolf Harris, uh, the the writer and singer, originally offered his backing musicians ten percent of the royalties on the song in 1960, and they decided to take a. Uh, a $28 payment instead, because I thought they were like, there's no way anybody's ever going to play this. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and I found that very funny. And the original recording has this like weird sound in it that was achieved with a thing called a wobble board, which was an instrument that Rolf Harris designed. That was like a two by three piece of hardboard. And you'll hear it a bit in the thing that I have, uh, brought that was my favorite thing that i i found regarding this particular song which is that i'm sorry is is hardboard just like cardboard's tougher cousin i maybe (laughs) said it's like oh it's a piece of hardboard like that's a thing we know (laughs) it's it's, uh okay so i i am i am asking the internet it's a type of fiber board so it's like oh like ikea furniture yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, so basically it's like the like back of like an IKEA dresser just yeah, flopped like, around. Like Masonite. Yeah, oh, yeah, after you break your dresser, you yeah. turn it into an instrument. That sounds like a great idea, actually. I clicked on the Wikipedia link for Wobbleboard, and the first sentence is the Wobbleboard is a musical instrument invented and popularized by the Australian musician, artist, and convicted pedophile Ralph Harris. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! It's featured in his best known song, Tiny Kangaroo Down Sport. God well, that- bless Wikipedia editors. Oh, Weirdly, that was not mentioned in the entry about the song proper. Well, then we'll speed through this quickly. So yeah, so he recorded a really loose, goofy version of this with the Beatles on a radio show in 1963 called From Us to You, Say the Beatles. 
<laughs> it feels like a thing that I made up, but it's not. I promise. But he, in in lieu of the uh, the verses about the the dying Australian guy, made up verses about the Beatles themselves, and one of them in particular worked out very well in an Australian way. And I just had to bring a clip. Don't ill treat me, pet dingo, Ringo. Don't ill treat me, pet dingo. He can't understand your lingo, Ringo. So don't ill treat me, pet dingo. All together now, time the kangaroo down sport. Time the kangaroo down. Time the kangaroo down sport. Time the kangaroo down. I think George's guitar's on the blink. Oh, I love that. Very adorable. Less adorable now that I know about Ralph Harris, but you know. That's why we can't have nice things. Alas. But I also, I, I almost fell down a true rabbit hole today because uh, apparently this was sung in an episode of a British sitcom I'd never heard of called George and Mildred. Oh, wait. Isn't George and Mildred the spinoff of the show that is the basis of Three's Company? Like George and Mildred, I think, is British yes. Brokers. Yes, that, that is what it is. I, I had to find out. Why do I have oh, that? Why? I don't know. Because <laughs> I, mean, I pulled it up and it was like, George and Mildred Roper. And I was like, oh, I know what this is. But uh, yeah, George and Mildred. On that note, uh, <laughs> why, why, why don't we, we, we close out with a little bit of sunshine? We all sing in the sunshine. We are singing in the sunshine, then I'll be on my way. So this one is We'll Sing in the Sunshine, which was written and recorded by a 22-year-old New Zealand-born Canadian folk singer named Gail Garnett in 1964. And I only bring up her age because I feel like her age is very clearly reflected in the lyrics. (laughs) In the Let's Be Together, but only for a year. Yeah, I the yeah I, I have the lyrics pulled up so we, we can actually ponder this. I will never love you. The cost of love's too dear. But though I'll never love you, I'll stay with you one year. <laughs> like, but this is like a whole genre of songs from the seventies. Like, you know, Linda Ronstadt's different drum is the same idea, right? Like, yeah. the fucking's good, but uh, there's too much of me for just one yeah, year. Uh, Fun, fun fact about different drum, uh, Rejected Monkeys song. It was written by Michael Nesmith. And they they were like, yeah, we think this is maybe too harsh a sentiment for the monkeys. And uh, so Linda Ronstadt and her Stone Ponies recorded it. Yeah, so the song is actually from the 60s. It's from 1964. And it was number four on the Hot 100, uh, number one on Cashbox. That's sort of an interesting reversal. Uh, and it was number one on the Adult Contemporary chart for seven weeks it also hit number 42 on the country chart, which I don't entirely understand. And it won a Grammy that no longer exists for best ethnic or traditional folk recording. Sure. How does this song fit into ethnic or traditional folk recording the category? So if you listen to her recording, Gail Garnett's, it's got much more of like a campfire sing-along vibe to it. And so I think that's how it landed in that yeah, category. Yeah, yeah. So it sounded folkier in the More original. Guitars. Yeah, and there's like a whole chorus of people singing along, doing their like little happy clappy thing. Yeah, uh-huh. all about how they'll leave you after a year. Yep. Yeah, I, I just, I would love to meet the person who listens to this proposition and goes, "Okay." <laughs> it was the sixties, Chrissy. Are, have you never met gay people? Like, 
<laughs> but it's, it's the it's the, it's the year, year. That's so specific. yeah it's, like right it's right. not like yeah no no i i right. trust me i understand the you know <laughs> both the concept and the appeal of like a casual relationship it's more but i also think there's something about a starter relationship like especially thinking about her as a 22 year old like i definitely dated people in my past where i was like this is not a forever relationship but this is going to get me some like good experience so that like i'm not a total imbecile when i meet the right person i never felt that way about any relationship every relationship that ended for me i was astonished (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that tracks maybe that's a me problem that sounds right So Helen Reddy also had a real recording of the song and this and blue were both from the same album, which was her most recent album at the time of the Muppet show. If we're wondering how these particular songs are the ones that got chosen for her to perform. So this is after Beauregard has uh, swept the sand onto the stage, which has somehow summoned a camel. And so they make the most of it. And Helen Reddy performs this as a, dance duet the camel doesn't sing with the camel and it's an arabian desert setting for some reason the sand has spontaneously generated a desert and everything that comes with it in the well, that i think is a set right because kermit sort of hastily puts everything together and there's he's actually st- he stalls for time on stage doing the intro while he with the rare time when we actually hear from the stagehands um, right, because he sort of shouts back behind the curtain. There's a whole Helen Reddy, no, we're not ready moment. Um, so I, I thought that they were they were like, you know, oh, we have all the sound on stage. What do we do? Right, and actually, doesn't Fozzie carries a palm tree on stage? Yeah, and he's like, you're lucky. I just happen to have this palm tree, <laughs> right? So it's like it's like their regular, like their their stock, their their prop stock includes tents and palm trees, and their their regular ensemble members you know are playing the arabs so the camel is what spontaneously appears backstage the rest of it kermit is like what are we going to do with the sand of this camel so that all makes sense to me and i guess that's why they choose a middle eastern setting as opposed to say arizona is because of the camel not just the sand because a camel would not be native to the american western desert so do we need to talk about the relationship between Helen Reddy and this camel? Yes, let's. <laughs> we took a long tangent, but what we're really here to talk about <laughs> is whether guest stars want to fuck a Muppet. Do you want to fuck that camel? <laughs> Do I? No. No, I said she wants to. <sighs> that, that, that's what I got to say about that. It is hump day. I, I don't see much chemistry between her and the camel. They're trying to make something happen that's not happening. <laughs> It only needs to last a year. There you <laughs> they go. don't need that much chemistry. <laughs> there is a, a beautiful concept sketch by Michael Frith on the wiki that we should link to. Because for kind of a weird looking camel, this is a lovely design. It's true. All right. Let's talk about the name of the camel. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed working with the camel. Oh, you say you enjoyed it. I said I can't tell you that. Hey, lady, you like him? He's yours. Good grief. What's his name? Sopwith. Sopwith the camel? 
So who's going to explain what a stop with camel is? It's a World War One plane. Great. Obviously. Well, but Peanuts. We talked. Well, right. We- I only knew that because of old Peanuts cartoons. I, right. I did not know that at all. Why? I, I mean, first of all, who actually pays attention during the World War One flying a sections of Peanuts cartoons? Well, like, Christy talked about it at length like three weeks ago. That is when you go to the bathroom. <laughs> I used to act those out when I was a little kid. I would pretend to be Snoopy. Again. As a World War One hero flying ace on my stop with Camel. We actually talked about this on this very podcast fairly recently when we talked about one of the uh, Peanuts holiday specials and how there's a very, very long... Pumpkin. yeah. Uh, yeah, a very long tangent about uh, Snoopy's World War One exploit. But also... But like, why would that mean that you would know the name of the plane? Because every one of those begins with, here's the World War One flying ace and his stop with camel. It's the only reason I know. Like, I have it memorized from childhood because it's so weird and it was like a thing that stood out to me. Huh. But also, yeah. when you when you call it sop with the camel, like I, I thought they were going like you know like sup with the camel, like sup <laughs> <laughs> with that yeah. camel. <laughs> Tell you what's up with that camel. I learned from the wiki that he's uh, featured in a deleted scene from the Muppet movie, where Statler and Waldorf uh, were originally following the gang around and making snide comments and in one scene they're riding this camel show up to make a comment and go away this is one of those things that i feel like you know at least adults in the 70s got the reference much like they got the reference in peanuts right like i only know it from peanuts but if like an adult reading the peanut strips probably actually knew what it was yeah people in the 70s knew what sop with the camel (laughs) right like they got it um also, the laugh track is out of control this entire episode. Because even if people in the 70s got that joke, that joke is not as funny as the laugh track no. thought it was. Yeah, I mean, she's giving a look that's like, really? Sop with the camel? That's the best you get? Yeah. Sop with is on display at the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta. And I have seen him there. And he is very cute. He is. Also weird, because not like a major character who made a lot of appearances. But a big, cool well build. Yeah, that's true. Jazz! Listen, turkey! What? And get out of show business? So a quick bit of show business. We've got a Muppet News flash. Dateline Silver Spring, Maryland. At this very moment, Mr. and Mrs. George Laser of Silver Spring are attempting to break the world's record for overhand refrigerator throwing. (laughs) That's the chilling conclusion. Anyway. So, uh... Today in Veterinarian's Hospital, remember the recording studio we talked about earlier and those sound technicians? So one of them is today's patient, and he's still wearing his headphones. Also, I like that today Dr. Bob is the butt of all his own jokes, which is a nice little change of pace. Can you hear me? Of course I can hear you. (laughs) You? Him. How can I hear him? He hasn't said a word. (laughs) If Florence Nightingale had to put up with this, she'd have been a waitress. Well, I can't do anything about his hearing now. Call me tomorrow. No, Dr. Bob. You're responsible for his ears. You're right. Call me irresponsible. Call me. I don't know what to say about Piggy's leg. She starts out examining her leg, and Rolf is also using a pair of opera glasses to just look at her leg. Yeah, that's weird. It is weird. Dr. Rob's getting hornier. It's true. 
That's all I got. This is what I thought. What's that? After this show, nothing hurts. It was Statler hitting his own hand with a hammer, which I found unsettling. Just as a test, in the name of science. Every once in a while, it's helpful to remember that they are, in fact, puppets. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it's a real hammer? Real hammer, fake hand. All right. Very small hammer, though. If real. It is very cute. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Next week, we cover one of the all-time great episodes of The Muppet Show featuring Harry Belafonte. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Bryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Uh, we have no corrections additions, right? Nope. Great. We were perfect. We are.